From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Welcome to Take on the South, the podcast Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina. I'm Matt Simmons, the Assistant Director of the Institute, and I'll be your host today. On the 18th of January, 1958, about 50 KKK members gathered to hold a rally outside of the small town of Maxwell, North Carolina, in the tri-racial county of Robinson County, North Carolina. They were met by several hundred armed members of the Lumbee Indian tribe, leading to an event that has come to be known as the Battle of Hayes Pond. With me today to discuss this event and the place of the Lumbee and, and the Indian in the story of the South is James Lockamy. James Lockamy is a native of Dillon, South Carolina, the recently retired chief judge of the South Carolina Court of Appeals. He was the first Native American uh, chief judge of the South Carolina Court of Appeals. And he is currently a board of trustee member at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, also located there in Robeson County. He's a member of the Lumbee Warriors, an association of Lumbee Indian military veterans, and the Native American Lawson Association here at the University of South Carolina School of Law is named for Judge Lockamy. Judge Lockamy, thank you for joining us here today, sir. Well, good afternoon to you, Matt. Good to be here. I'm honored to be here. Uh, very, very good. Judge, why don't you tell us what happened outside of Maxson, North Carolina on the 18th of January, 1958? Well, uh, Matt, uh, you've given a pretty good, I guess, outline of what happened. I didn't know much about this until um, I remembered as a little boy uh, watching something on the news. My father, and I want to talk to you about that. But but before we get to the actual battle or the actual event of, of that night in January of 58, can I tell you a little bit about the background of what it's like to Absolutely. be a please, please, Native please. American um Okay, and you're world. from and you're from Dillon. We're talking about something that happened in Robeson County, North Carolina. For those of our listeners who might not know the geography there, where is Dillon? Where's Dillon County uh, located uh, in in relation to Robeson County, North Carolina? Well, Dillon County, of course, is on the border of North Carolina. Next to us is Marlboro County. Um, we're probably from. Robson County. And by the way, um, interesting you say Robeson. Uh, I was uh, at a gathering the other day and uh, some Native American says, you know, all those whites call us Robeson. We're Robeson. <laughs> How about that? Uh, but it is interesting the different pronunciation is R-O-B-E-S-O-N. Um, but uh, Dillon uh, borders uh, Robinson County. Uh, on If you go Cross 95 into Roland, um, and then you go over uh, towards Pembroke, but uh, that's Robinson County, then Marlboro County the same way. And, you know, um, a lot of people feel that the Native Americans who live in that area, southeastern North Carolina, Robinson, maybe even over into Columbus County, um, and Scotland, and uh, Cumberland County, as well as in northeastern Sand Hills of South Carolina, Marlboro County, Dillon County, maybe into Orie, Marion, and uh, maybe into Chesterfield, that they didn't worry about 
state lines, they were looking at places to stay. Uh, some people feel that the Lumbee Indians, and I want to talk to you a little bit about how that name came about, but that the Lumbee Indians uh, could very well be the descendants of the lost colony of Roanoke. The legend is that, that after Sir Walter Raleigh in 1586, they settled the Roanoke, and then they, they left to go get supplies, and the Spanish Armada and all the warring with Spain interfered, and it was about two or three years before they get back that the, the colony itself had disappeared. We all remember in school the name Virginia Dare, the first uh, uh, English person uh, born on this soil uh, in the English colony area. Uh, but the, the people disappeared. They found no signs of, uh, of struggle or anything, no graves, no uh, blood or anywhere they found just the word croatan on a tree some people feel that uh, a nomadic uh, native american tribe american indian tribe came and rescued them and they blended together and, and ended up in uh southeastern north carolina northeastern south carolina um others say that part may be true but in addition uh after the toll of so many europeans coming into uh, um, uh, the carolinas uh, so many Indians dying from disease and, uh, and, and being killed by the increasing number of Europeans come in and the battles and wars, that eventually also some of them basically were almost wiped out. They just sort of gathered together the remnants of what was left. And um, you find that uh, uh, there was a guy named Locklear who had a property in that area of Robson County, people gathered in that area and Locklear is a British name meaning locksmith um, and that name is very very predominant in the Lumbee area as is Oxendine, uh, Dial, Maynard uh, so they sort of gathered and settled uh, in that area uh, they always had um, uh, farming involved they, they never was sort of living in teepees or, or uh, uh, that type of thing uh, and um, and so even in, in when Jackson uh, sent the Native Americans, the Indians, the Cherokees, and others out to Oklahoma in the 1830s, he didn't send the uh, Lumbees. Nobody took land from the Lumbees and sent them out there. And many people feel because they've always had this interesting um, English-type names and living and farming, living um, as um, um whites did that that basically that they were not the subject of uh of the trail of tears um but they've never been able to be federally recognized as a tribe for for hundreds of years they were just called indians uh sometimes they were called cherokees sometimes they were called uh uh tuscores or all different names finally um towards the 19th century because of that name croatan from the tree uh north carolina called them the croatans um and uh you look at some of the census records uh, where they uh, have people they'll say uh this guy was a person was a croatan my uh, great-grandfather alec uh, Locklear was a Croatan. Uh, other, then after that, uh, they uh, that became sort of a um, kind of a, a slur to call someone. Hey, you Croatan, you Croatan. Um, in the 20th century, uh, the river that is called the uh, Lumber River, uh, research showed that initially, if you look at some of the 
maps in the 18th, 17th century, you'll see Lumbee instead of Lumber. And that's where most of the uh, Cortans and the American Indians who all blended together, where they were staying. So they decided that they wanted to have another name other than Cortan. And uh, they petitioned, and the North Carolina General Assembly officially named them the Lumbee Indians after the river, which originally was Lumbee. Um, and what is that name, Lumbee? Because I, I grew up next county over from uh, mm-hmm. uh, Columbus I, I, I grew up in Columbus County, next county over. And we were always told the Lumber River was called the Lumber River because they floated logs down it. You know, they had lumber mills, they floated logs down it, and that's what it was there for. It was called, it's called that. This is revelatory to me that it was originally called the Lumbee River. Do it, we know what that word means, well, where it come from? Other than uh, various Indian names, Lumbayi, Lalabi, but then Lumbi has gradually come to that. But then, as you said, because it was so much logging going on, uh, gradually the name for the river changed to Lumber because so much lumber was sent down that Lumbi River that people just began referring to it Lumber. They forgot the fact it was originally Lumbi or something close to that pronunciation. And so uh, North Carolina agreed to recognize this group, about 30,000 Lumbees in the um, uh, early 1950s. And so that was the birth of the the Lumbee Nation. Uh, They have state recognition. They do not have federal recognition yet. Uh, There's been many efforts to do so. Usually makes it through one House of Congress and not the other. Uh, But in North Carolina, they have an organizational office. Uh, They have records. They have uh, many uh, 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 means of becoming a member of the tribe. They have meetings and tribal officers and those things but mainly they live just like uh just like whites um but for most of the 19th century and the 20th century in robinson county in scotland county in dillon county marlborough county it wasn't just a thing we think of the south of the jim crow era of black and white uh, african americans and whites and the conflicts there you also had this third race, uh, the uh, Indians, the Native Americans. And um, you had actual schools uh, where Indians went to the schools that were not the African-American schools, not the white schools, were actual separate schools. You have places and stories of many restaurants who wouldn't serve Indians just like you wouldn't serve African-Americans. Um uh, and I don't, I don't say this in the sense that the prejudice against Native Americans was as horrendous and horrible as it was against African Americans. I, I don't think it was, but it still was there. It was a social thing, and of uh, uh, we don't want to mix with those people. Uh, and I always just thought that the, the Lumbees themselves, almost by definition, because over the years they've mixed uh, with other races or sort of a, a half-breeds, would call you and things of that nature as i was born in dillon county my father was born in mccall south carolina his name was locklear um and i've done some checking and saw where his father was born uh and his grand and his father grandfather born in robson county um uh, named alec locklear and on the the census it says croatan but my daddy is a locklear uh he experienced somewhat of that differences about the fact that people realized he was not white, but yet African-Americans said he's not black. And um, 
and he was rather quiet about it. He met my mother. Uh, both had been married before. My mother's family is Scotch-Irish, and they did not want her dating or marrying uh, an Indian, especially not a, they said, not a Locklear. You know, uh, we're Turbervilles. Uh, we're Jacksons. You don't marry a Locklear. So my father, um, in the 1940s, went down to the courthouse, filed a little petition, and changed his name from Locklear to Lockamy. How about that? Uh, so my name is just made up. He made huh. it up. Up. Um, and from that, they got married, and uh, the name Lockamy became uh, their name. My mother wouldn't talk to us much about my father's heritage, and neither my father remained quiet. And I found out later the reason. Um, uh, the KKK at the time was very active in the 40s and 50s, and um, there was a big concern about not only African Americans who might date white women. The KKK was concerned about um, uh, Native Americans dating white women, and um, my father was married to a white woman, so he was very quiet about most things. He wouldn't tell us about his family at all. Uh, I know in the uh, sixth grade we were given a task to to do a family tree, and of course my mother said, "Here, let me give you this stuff." Nothing about my father's family. Everything was about my mother's family, about the Jacksons and the history of the Jacksons and those type of things. Um, she had kept us, her children, my, my mother and father's children. We'd always gone to the white schools because she put W down for our race. She never put other or Native American because she knew the uh, we had Leland Grove, a uh, uh, elementary school in Dillon County for Native Americans. But by putting the W, no one ever said anything other than the fact we always went to the white schools. I never knew much about my father. My mother said, well, he may have been adopted. My father wouldn't say much. But yet, with people coming in our little country grocery store, my family ran. Sometimes they'd say, hey, Mr. Locklear, how you doing? And then once in a while, they'd say, uh, how's a half-breed or something? And uh, you would uh, hear about it, and you didn't know what to say. And it was sort of taboo to even question or say much about it. And, um, and then after I got through with school and had gone um, – through the law school and everything else, the Army, I'd come back home, and I was running for the legislature. And I remember in 1982, I, I knocked on the door and asked someone to vote for me. They said, well, I, I don't know. Aren't you that half-breed? I said, and for my first time in my life, I began to feel this sense of prejudice, this sense of somebody judging me because of blood in my veins as opposed to my character or my ability to do this or that. And it was a strange feeling. Mm. Um I decided, though, not to get angry about that. I decided just to, to basically get more determined to prove I could be the best representative Dillon County ever had. And um, uh, I was elected by just a couple hundred votes, but I did win. And I have always uh, uh, appreciated the people of Dillon County who said I would, they will give me that opportunity. And I hope I didn't... Uh, um, I, I didn't let them down. I did my best for four terms to, to be a good representative and and um, to uh, work very, very hard. But uh, they did give me an opportunity. But there were some people, I must admit, uh, that were concerned about voting for me because of my background, because my father that's was right. a Lumbee Indian. That's, that's all fascinating. I think it sets this overall story of what happened at Hayes Pond on that night in January 1958 up quite well you tell this personal story there about your your own relationship your own understanding of your identity your background uh and then how 
this fits to this larger understanding of the Indian here in the Carolinas, kind of being between two worlds, you know, in, in a way. You know, my dad almost wondering, who am I? Where do I belong? Uh, what am I? You know, I've talked with Daddy about this, uh, my Daddy about this, growing up under in, in Jim Crow, Columbus County, North Carolina, and asking it because there's a sizable uh, uh, Native American population in Columbus County as well, not not to the extent in, in Robeson County, but. You know, I would ask him. You said, "Daddy, where did I asked him once?" I said, "Daddy, where did uh, where did the Walkamot, who were the primary people in, in Columbus County, uh, where did they go to school? Did they go to the black school or the white school?" And he says, "Well, it was kind of funny. It kind of depended, right? Some went to one, some went to the other, and because they didn't really fit into either box. And so you have this South that, in the course of its 19th and early 20th century history, becomes this place that has." three people groups black white and native but has a story only about two of them like how does that third group fit into you know fit into this mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating sort of thing just to hear you tell your personal anecdotes about this and i also love how this goes right into the hayes pond the institute we're here to really talk about today because the clan who's there as you say to preserve the preserve the uh, uh the purity of the white race as it were right um you know from blackness, but also from Indianness, if you will, right? Uh, why do they choose the outskirts of Macton, North Carolina? Why do they choose, and and what are they doing? Where is this clan from? Are they from there in in Robeson County? Or are they from somewhere else? Where are they coming from? Who who's leading this clan, and and, and what's and what are they uh, what do they want to do there on that night in January in nineteen fifty eight? Well. In the 50s, as you remember, you had uh, Brown v. Board of Education uh, decided in 54, which uh, spurred a lot of people to join the Klan who said, ah, we got to do something to protect the white race. And that happened in South and North Carolina. Um, uh, by the way, you know Brown v. Board really began as uh, Briggs v. Elliott from yes, South Carolina. Right, right here, right here in South Carolina. Uh, That's right. Uh, something we really need, need to do a lot more research and and study on and to bring forth the knowledge of the people about. But um, in in uh, 1957 and 58, you had um, a divorce that was going on, and the divorce that was going on in North Carolina was based on the fact that you had. A white couple, white woman, white man, she was dating an Indian guy, and that was the reason for the divorce. Now, now if I'm asking, I don't know if you know this, but uh, did the the laws of interracial marriage that were overturned by Love and Be Virginia, did those apply to white and Indian relationships as well, or was that just white and black relationships? Well, if you would think about it, technically they did, but were they enforced in that regard? Many times it weren't because of the, the appearance. Sometimes it was hard to say. Sure. Plus, like when my mother, a lot of people just put W down. Okay. And how would you know? Uh, but technically, you would think uh, that it did. Uh, that was overturned by Loving Be Virginia, as you, you noted. But... In addition, you had some Native Americans, some Lumbees who'd moved into a white neighborhood. You had this guy in South Carolina, Marin County and Dillon County, where I was living, obviously, growing up, um, named Catfish Cole. Um, He uh, saw the fact that we need to do something to let the people know that we will not tolerate 
Indians dating white women or marrying into white women, creating a, as he called it, a mongrelization of our race. And he was, uh, he was a Klansman. He was a he Klansman. Was, he was a Klansman, and then he wanted to form a sort of a fiefdom of his own, uh, and he became, he called himself and became the wizard of, of that group, you know, the leader of that group of the Klansmen. And so he said, you know, uh, the area where there's so many of them over in uh, Robson County is in Pembroke. We need to go there and show them what's what. Uh, and the sheriff for Robinson County said, no, please don't come over here and, uh, and asked them not to have a rally in, uh, in Robinson County. Uh, Catfish Cole said, no, we're going to show you how to control these people. Because you remember, Robinson County itself um, uh, had maybe 30,000 Native Americans. It had 25,000, 30,000 uh, whites and about ten or 15,000 African Americans. It was really a tri-county. Uh, and the sheriff was white, and he was trying his best not to have a problem. Uh, Cole advertised the fact they're going to have a rally on January the 18th. Uh, he tried to find land close to Pembroke to make a real point of it, but no one would rent him the land. No one would let him use their land. Uh, neither whites nor African Americans nor Native Americans wanted anything to happen on the land. He finally found someone who was friendly out of about 10, 12 miles out of Pembroke, close to Maxton, uh, close to Hayes Pond, out in a field. Well, the clan went around with the, on the trucks with the microphones saying you're going to have a rally, you're going to rally. And Catfish Cove predicted they were going to have thousands of Klansmen there to have a big rally. Uh, what he didn't realize, though, when he was advertising to the Klan to come there, <laughs> he was also advertising to Native Americans what's going to happen in their backyard. And many of them were very upset with that. Uh, you have, at that time, Pembroke College, the normal school created for Native Americans. Which is which, now UNCP. Which is now University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Uh, you even had the president, of the, he was called president, not chancellor, who was supporting Native Americans. He was white, saying, we cannot let this happen. And he did not discourage students who wanted to get involved to do something to oppose uh, this Klan rally. Um, and uh, so uh, you had several meetings of, of, of uh, the Lumbees saying, we're going to, this newly created tribe, the Lumbees, remember it was in the 50s they were created. So, uh, oh, that, that's fascinating because they were created right Remember they were the Croatans and they right. were the Indians, they were right. Cherokees and all that. Now they're the Lumbees. And so they, um, uh, they began to, map out some strategy. What do you do about this Klan rally? And also what the KKK did not anticipate is you had a lot of Lumbees who were World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, um, who many of who'd received uh, uh, various awards for heroism uh, in battle. And they got involved too, saying we'll we'll figure some way to stop what's going to happen there, or at least to make sure they know this is not where you come to do anything like what they wanted to do. So January the 18th was a Saturday, uh, very cold, uh, but the Klan got there, and to Coles, I guess, I guess to his chagrin, there were not a thousand Klansmen there. Were, like you say, maybe, maybe more than 50, but, but not 
three or 400, maybe it's at the max, maybe a hundred, somewhere between 50 and a hundred. But, um, uh, the Lumbees gathered a minimum of 400, maybe 500. Some newspaper accounts had 1,000. Uh, and you not just uh, men, though. You had men and women. Verdi Locklear, a woman, she talks about how that people are saying, you bring, need to bring your pistol or your, or your rifle. She said, I had both. So I was ready. <laughs> and Good she night. told her husband, if you go, I'm going. So she was there. So you had men and women there uh, that night. And so as the Klan gathered, as they got their cross ready to burn, uh, the, the Lumbees started marching towards where they, they, they were trying to rally, many of them in their white outfits with their hoods and all that. They had put up, since it was nighttime, it was supposed to start at 8 o'clock or 8.30, they had this car battery, and i show you the, the finesse here. They have a car battery, the Klan does, and they have wiring in the battery to hold a big light bulb up, and that was going to be their illumination that night, a light bulb powered by a car battery. And so the Lumbees get there, and they, they don't go initially catfish. They're saying, where's your wizard? Where's Cole? And he was still getting himself ready in the woods out there. And, um, and uh, they put their, a shotgun up to the head of one guy and said, you better tell us where he is or you're not going to be here tomorrow. And the guy um, looked back at him, and you thought at that time you were going to start then having shooting and maybe deaths going on. Uh, but before anything else could happen after that, another Lumbee decided to shoot out that light. Okay. Well, when he shot out the light, you had total darkness. You had total darkness, and when you had total darkness, you had everybody shouting and hollering. You had guns going off everywhere. Amazingly, no one was was killed. But you had firing going off here and there, guns were shooting. Catfish Cole, when he saw what was going on, his wife was in a car with his children. Uh, He saw what was going on. Instead of going to get his wife and rescue them and try to uh, protect them, he decided to run to the woods. In fact, there's a a cartoon (laughs) that one newspaper guy did that has Catfish Cole running with his clan white outfit with arrows sticking out of his behind <laughs> as he's running towards the woods and he runs into the woods leaves his wife and children the second in command who's drunk by the way by the time the clan rally starts he goes and collapses in a ditch um uh, other people start running back and forth you have uh, uh you can see from the newspaper accounts the photographs you had you had almost as many journalists there as you had clansmen all the photographs they were taking um of the fighting back and forth and the flash bulbs were then illuminated enough you could see that um, the Klansmen were being overpowered very quickly and, and then they began to running. Uh, many of them ran as far as the South Carolina line trying to get out of there with the, with the Lumbees behind them. It's almost oh, like that man. old Johnny Horton song about the British at New Orleans. Oh, they yeah. ran through the brambles <laughs> and they ran through the brushes and ran through a, what the brushes where the rabbit couldn't go but the, they were running uh, and kept running. Uh, uh, the North Carolina governor, to his credit, he was concerned about violence. He had stationed about 50 highway patrolmen about a mile away to be ready if something happened. The Robinson County Sheriff's deputy, uh, Sheriff's Office had about 10 or 12 deputies. Once things started and they saw getting out of hand, the highway patrol came in. They restored some sort of order after a while. Uh, they arrested that second-in-command guy in the ditch who was drunk, took him to jail. What do they Catfish. charge him with? Uh, they charge him with, with public drunkenness and disorderly conduct. Then they later charge him with inciting a riot. They uh, uh, 
had a warrant also for Catfish Cole. But this time he'd come back over into South Carolina, and uh, he was um, uh, he was uh, at his home and said, I'm not going back to North Carolina. They're not going to make me go across that line. Of course, then to have a warrant, you've got to have extradition. And he failed in his efforts to uh, stop extradition, and he got sent back to North Carolina. And um, funny thing is, the second-in-command for his – public drunkenness and was sent in front of a, a what is we call in our state a magistrate judge but a court recorded judge named maynard who was a lumbie indian how oh man uh, who, sen- who sentenced him to 60 days but suspended it with a fine to show that how we can be magnanimous how about of course that? he was later though indicted for the inside and the right in superior court which is like our circuit court where they both uh, he got a lesser time but but catfish cole was convicted um and got 18 months in jail uh, he tried to fight that. He appealed it. Um, he finally lost it and had to serve time in jail. It made national news. You had Life magazine put them on the cover of the magazine. You had photographs of the Lumbees, um, two Lumbees who had been World War II veterans. They drove all the way to Charlotte because Charlotte Observer uh, wanted to interview them in the TV station. They brought with them the Klan, some of the clothing they had ripped off of them. So the they had flag, ripped off Klan robes and, they and the, the, uh, wow. threw down. The, the the cross they want to try to burn they had portions of it and you have a you have a photograph in life magazine with them adorned with the robing of the clan laughing and 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 uh, smirking at, at what that? they have you even had um, you remember peter paul and mary pete seeger yes uh, he and another lady uh, a, a folk singer her name is um uh malvina reynolds that's the song about it called the battle of maxton field since it was close to maxton some people call it maxton field and um uh, about what had happened and i only the um the uh, chorus of it it says oh the clan oh the clan it calls on every red blood fighting man who is free and white and bigoted get his courage from a spigot and protects his racial purity the very best he can the Indians, the Indians, they are a natural foe. They lure our girls with Coke and pie and take them to the show. They wear blue jeans and leather coats, but anyone can see they're not real Americans, the like of you and me. But, of course, that night, the veterans of World War II, the true Americans who risked their life for this country, showed, yes, they are true Americans. I was uh, uh, about seven years old when this happened. As I told you, my father was very quiet about things. And the reason for this thing, this rally, was because of a Native American dating white women and the, the thought they want to try and make sure Native Americans kept in their place and didn't go into white areas. And my father married to a white woman. We had a country store, and like most country stores at that time in 58, we had the only TV in the entire uh, very poor neighborhood. Mostly African Americans lived there. Some Native Americans, and mostly African Americans. People would come to the store to watch the fights and to see baseball games. Dizzy Dean uh, announcing the ball games and things like that. And um, I remember though, in January of that year, uh, all of a sudden the news hit, the national news about what had occurred at Hayes Pond. My father went over to the TV around the counter up to the front, and it was sitting on top of, of our meat counter where we had uh, many of our fresh meats and fresh cuts and all. And he reached up, and as you had to then, he turned the knob up for the volume so he could hear it better. And there I'm standing wondering what my father's looking at. 
and I just remember the boy him seeing all the images and seeing the 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 uh, Lumbees running the Klan through the woods, and hearing the governor of North Carolina praising the Lumbees, hearing uh, the sheriff of Robson County saying the Lumbees uh, will ride in this thing that the Klan's one started the rally, and my father reached down and grabbed my hand, and he had a little tear coming from his eye and. I remember him squeezing my hand and with this kind of a sense of pride, he said, those are your people, son. Those are your people. How about that? And I knew that there was something going on there that made my father very proud. Unfortunately, I didn't know enough at that time to be very proud about it. But now, today, I'm so proud of my father. I'm proud of those Lumbees that stood up that day. Because if you think about it, that might have been the beginning of the end of any power the Klan had in the South. That was the only time, the first time, rather, first time the Klan was ever run out of a southern city. And that really, to me, hopefully was the beginning of the end of the Klan. Um, My father made me proud. Wow, and it was Lumbee that did that. That's and the Lumbees, yes. Wow, wow, wow. So th- th- this actually brings up a question then. So if this moment can be reasonably understood as the beginning of the end of the Klan having significant power. There were little spurts of it coming sure. back in the 60s every once in a while, sure. but you, you don't really see the large gatherings. Uh, I mean, you still have yeah. the Klan now, but, I mean, the joke is now if you have, you know, Klan rally, half of them are FBI agents. You know, that, that's, well, that's not only that, now, but, so. but not in the sense of numbers. You're right about that. But, but here you end up with the establishment feeling bad against the Klan and yes. with the Lumbees. The governor of North Carolina saying the Lumbees are correct here. Uh, the Klan, this Klan thing was wrong. The sheriff of Robinson County, a white person, being very much saying the Klan was wrong. The Klan is something that's starting uh, uh, fights, starting riots, uh, violence that we don't need. Yes. So you begin, to, you begin to see here um, uh, uh, many of the whites in government positions who are realizing the Klan is not something good for our our country, which our is states. I think I think really interesting that it's these these white governmental leaders in you know North Carolina, local and state leaders there standing with the Lumbee, not with the other white folk with the Klan there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, w- how did this play out? So it obviously got national press. You were saying it's showing up in Life magazine, and and these people are being. Um, interviewed and, 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 and celebrated on television. Um, how did this show up with other, do you know how it showed up in other Southern political leaders? How it was, when you get down to Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, you know, what were reactions like in places like that? Um, or was this just a, a thing where, the, where these positive reactions were essentially a Carolina thing? How did the South Carolina government respond to this, uh, if you know? I don't think South Carolina responded at all because, number one, you had this fear of response, too, um, that you didn't want to go too far, that you might have a bad reaction, and you had people running for office to be elected. Remember, it was only uh, three years later we let the first African-American in this state into uh, uh, Clemson University. That's right. Remember Gantt um, uh, when uh, Hollings was governor of the state, and you had the legislature, many people in the legislature, who were very much opposed to it, wanted to fight it. Uh, Hollings says, no, we've done all we can do. Segregation is over. We need to start cooperating. But there were a lot of people in the legislature who were very much opposed and against uh, that just 
few years later. So segregation itself didn't end. You still had years of fighting going on, um, especially once again when you look at white versus black. Sure. Um, you still had that subtle stuff with the Native Americans, the social thing, the feeling of, well, I'm white, I'm better than this Native American. Uh, maybe I'm not as uh, uh, sort of distinguished from him as I am from the African American, but uh, I, I'm more pure. Um, and I think that um, uh, most people don't realize the, the as you say, the three areas of division uh we had leland grove uh, in south carolina and by the way to show you how things began to change in the records of our school district uh, uh for our camp for dillon county you have the records of the native american school district and you had a guy named Brayboy. He started this elementary school over in the western part of the county where he would gather kids from North and South Carolina, Native American kids, and bring them there. One child he took out of the cotton fields and brought him to the, that school who then stayed in school. That guy became English Jones, got his Ph.D., and became chancellor of uh, Pembroke State University. But Brayboy did so much work, people began to recognize it. People liked Brayboy, too. In 1969, he was selected as the South Carolina Teacher of the Year mm-hmm. for the state because of what he'd done there at Leland Grove. And, um, and he was sent to San Francisco for the finals of Teacher of the Year, he finished fifth for the nation. A Native American, James Brayboy, who had done so much organizing Leland Grove, the Native American school in Dillon County, uh, it ended finally in 68 um, as schools began to integrate totally. Uh, But he had done so much work uh, for this that people began to realize and really appreciate it. Wonderful. So you made a point... uh, as we're wrapping this conversation up, uh, you made a point a little bit earlier about how this event in 1958 was so proximate to the inauguration of the Lumbee Nation as a, as a recognized Indian group in the state of North Carolina. Um, how does this event shape the self-understanding of the Lumbee in particular and Native Americans in the Carolinas more generally? Uh, or, or how does it play into their understanding of their place in, in the Carolinas, in the South more generally, and the sort of greater sort of cultural mythology of their place in these worlds? Uh, how does, how well, does this event shape Well, more so that? in North Carolina than in South Carolina. In South Carolina, there's so few of us. Um, you probably have 300 in Dillon County, couple of hundred, 300, 400 in Marlboro County. So you don't have a lot of power or voice, but in North Carolina, you got like the 30,000. January 18th is now a commemorative day uh, for the Lumbee Nation, uh, uh, the Battle of Hayes Pond Day. Um, I'm not sure whether, I think the state legislature passed it, um, but to commemorate that day. But in the Lumbee Nation, January 18th is a day of celebration. Uh, to them. Um, and uh, it is a unifying force. There's an Institute of the Southeast Indian um, uh, at Pembroke State University, or University of Pembroke, and they have so many um, 
living histories of people actually participated. I listened to some of the interviews of some of the people who were young men and women at the time uh, who'd been interviewed about Hayes Pond. And this Southeastern uh, Indian uh, Institute is really a great place where they're preserving so much of this, preserving and, and, and commemorating so that people uh, won't forget and people know. And it is a source of pride. Is a source of pride. The Lumbees themselves are very proud of being Lumbees. Um, they've never, ever gotten money from the government. There's never been an organized group to say, hey, give money to the Lumbees. There's never been like it is in many of the other uh, tribal institutions around the around the country. They've all just basically gathered the money themselves. The U.S. government has never come in and said, we're going to do this, do that, and that type of thing. They're very proud of the independence they've had, and they're very proud of the service they've given to their nation. In July of every year, they have a, or June 30, I think it is, they have a wonderful, wonderful um, celebration of this country. Uh, they're very proud of the service they gave in uniform in uh, World War II and World War I and uh, Korea and Vietnam, uh, they many of them wear their uniforms um, to this big celebration close to the 4th of July. They're proud Americans and Americans we should be proud of. Very good. Now, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way to, to end that, Judge Lockham. It's a great story about Southerners we should be proud of, Americans we should be proud of, and it's a not as well-known part of our history uh, that I'm glad you were able to share with us today. Judge Lockamy is the recently retired chief judge of the South Carolina Court of Appeals, a board of trustee member at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. And I am glad to have you've come in here and told us this wonderful, fascinating story today, Judge Lockamy. Thank you for being here. Matt, thank you so much for allowing me to share this with you. Thank you very much. And until next time, this is Matt Simmons at the Institute for Southern Studies saying y'all take it easy. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. (laughs) 